I kid you not, uh, I have walked around my house this morning right before the show. I was almost late coming into the studio because I've been walking around looking for my coffee and it was in my hand the whole time. Like seven or eight minutes, I'm looking around the house, where's my coffee? And it, I am literally holding the cup in my hand. Yeah, I, I have hit middle age. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Um, my goodness gracious. Okay, we. I, I need to begin with Catherine Moss. You don't know Catherine Moss. I don't know Catherine Moss. Um, I, 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 I don't know her. She's an author, apparently, in uh, New York City. She writes children's books. She writes progressive-oriented children's books. Hang on a second. Um, Catherine Moss, author. Uh, th- this is relevant. Uh, there, there, there's a relevancy here. Um, oh, my. Uh, is this the... No, that can't be her. Um no. Anyway, she's a progressive author in uh, New York City, and she has written a series of books for children, and she is very mad at me. And uh, the reason she's mad at me, this is so stupid, y'all. This lady put up a tweet, and in the tweet, all she does is ask, uh, when you were a child, what did you think was the pinnacle of success with other families, the, the pinnacle of wealth with other families? And with her, it was going to someone's house and they had an ice maker built into their fridge. If, if you went to someone's house and they had a refrigerator that had a built-in ice maker, you knew they were a wealthy family. You know, with me growing up in Dubai, it was actually going to a house where someone had a home computer, particularly an Apple computer, a Mac. My family, I I grew up in Dubai, and I was the only person in the school, my family, my sisters and I, we were the only family in the school that did not have a home computer. And we had a type, we had an electric typewriter with a tiny screen. Um, Everyone else had a home computer. And, uh, I mean, it was a sign of, of wealth and, and, you know, interestingly enough, when I moved back to rural Louisiana, uh, for school in 10th grade, my parents finally got me a a computer, man, it it was maxed out at, uh, 33 megahertz. Um, it had something like a 40 megabyte hard drive in it. It ran DOS, uh, and you had to punch it. Literally, you had to punch it over the power button to get it to turn on. And, but I had a computer by God and, and nobody else in the school did until my buddy Elmer got one the next year and it was 66 megahertz and I was jealous. Um, but anyway, so I, I chimed in with that. Several friends of mine were chiming in that this woman, this author had this tweet uh, on what was the pinnacle of wealth when you were a kid. Lots of people said uh, you went to a home and they had a pool or they had air conditioning or they had cable or they had HBO. We didn't have HBO. Well, I participated and said the home computer thing and Apparently, I wasn't allowed to participate, and I had no idea. And she had to shut down the Twitter thread. She had to delete the tweet um, because I'm a problematic soul, and I, I dared to participate. This author I haven't even heard of. Goodness gracious. So, okay, uh, it just this is it, this derangement. Uh, so much of what I've talked about, where you you know people online, you build communities online, and anyone who comes in from the outside is an interloper, is the enemy, is bad. 
That's the phenomenon we're seeing here. Well, it, it's also very interesting in the tribalism, this Katie Hill situation, and this is what we really need to get into. There's a sex scandal in, on Capitol Hill. It was uncovered by Jennifer Van Lahr, my, uh, who writes at my old site, redstate.com. I left at the end of 2015. Um, long story short, uh, Red State's owned by a radio company competing with my radio company. I couldn't integrate my radio show into the website. I wanted to be a radio guy, so I, I left to start this on my own website. And uh, Red State has really done quite well without me there. It's nice to see it succeed, actually. And uh, Jennifer Van Lahr broke the story. This member of Congress is in a throuple. She's in a three-way. Uh, she's got a husband and she's got a girlfriend. They all live together. The husband, apparently, she says is abusive. Um, and she's having an affair on both of them with a guy on Capitol Hill who's a staffer who worked on her campaign. And pictures have been released of her with her, her girlfriend uh, taken by her husband. People are calling it revenge for She's resigned from Congress. There seems to be more there there. And the reason there seems to be more there there is she's been having an affair with a Capitol Hill staffer in defiance of rules that were enacted by the Democrats about behavior on Capitol Hill. And suddenly she's the victim. Here's uh, the left-wing Jill Filipovich on CNN. This is, this is a huge part of the story. Do you think, in, a sense, in essence, by resigning, that she is letting the extortion, extortionists, those who are putting all these photos of her out there, are they, did they win? No, I don't think so. I think Hill's doing the right thing. Having an affair with a subordinate is wrong. Yeah. I think we can say that. Yeah. I think we can also say that revenge porn is many, many magnitudes worse than a consensual affair. And so by resigning, Hill, she's, she's done the right thing. We all agree, all right? She's, that's off the table. She's resigned, over. Now let's talk about what happened to her, what she was a victim of, and what, frankly, Congress should be doing to make sure that no other woman ends up in Hill's position. There should be a federal revenge porn law. That's something that every legislator should be pushing for. Congress should be looking at, for example, Red State, which published these photos from an anonymous source. We're all kind of assuming that was Katie Hill's ex-husband. It seems like it probably was. We don't know for sure. Yeah. Whoever it was, Red State gave him the cover of anonymity. That is wildly irresponsible, and it probably should be illegal. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Red State's a journalistic enterprise. Now, none of these people think it's illegal for the whistleblower to blow the whistle on Donald Trump. They're, they're heralding that person as a hero because they don't like Donald Trump. This woman is violating the laws in Congress, the rules in Congress. Well, why isn't the whistleblower a hero in this case? Because they like her, actually, because she's a, a liberal Democrat. They're okay with her. They're, the pictures are, in addition to her naked with her with her girlfriend, apparently, uh, there's one of her doing bong hits and, and drinking heavily. She apparently has, has had some issues. Um, there were allegations made, but suddenly uh, Red State's not a journalistic enterprise because the journalists don't like the journalism that Red State did. This is why you can't have Congress regulate the press, by the way. But why is, you know, I'm old enough to remember, man, uh, I was in, where, where was I? I? I guess I was in law school at the time. No, was I in law school? No, no. I was just at a law school at the time. Uh, the National Enquirer published a piece that alleged John Edwards was having an affair. And the national media vilified and assailed the National Enquirer for daring to suggest that John Edwards was having an affair. 
Turns out John Edwards was having an affair. You know, the media never apologized to John Edwards. The media ultimately wound up doing its own research into it. He had a love child, I believe. Um, the whole thing was was um, sorted. He lost his law license. Someone paid the woman off. It, it was a very bizarre moment in American history. And, and one of the issues was the media loved John Edwards' wife. They loved her. She had cancer. She was on medication to keep the cancer from growing. She, she passed away several years ago, but the media loved Elizabeth Edwards and they loved John Edwards and they loved John Edwards. Why? Because of his good looks. He was Kennedy-esque. He's still around somewhere in North Carolina, but the media loved the guy. They absolutely loved the guy. They they made him into, into a, a hero and how dare uh, the National Enquirer tried to tear down John Edwards and the media had to tear down the National Enquirer for daring to come after their precious John Edwards. Here's Chris Hayes on MSNBC last night. The only thing that um, someone on, uh, on the all on staff raised today that I thought was a great point is that like Katie Hill, I think, is around 34, mm-hmm. 32, um, 32 right? There is an entire generation of yes. Americans. yes who have been taking selfies and images of themselves in various contexts, whether at parties or in intimate relationships and consenting adults. And those images, like, there's going to be a generation of members of Congress and politicians where there are thousands of images just around. And it's like, we're going to have to decide as a society if we're going to let that be some permanent, like, source of blackmail Mm -hmm. that every person that has a grudge out for you for the rest of your life that you dated in college and then you go on to be a Democrat and they're a Republican is going to be able to, like, bring you down with. Wait a second. I'm old enough to remember when you people didn't bat an eyelash at someone pulling out tweets from 10 years ago of someone who was in high school and ruining them because you didn't like them because they were a conservative. Just a few weeks ago, we had the Des Moines Register reporter ruin a guy who raised money for health care for a children's health care center in Iowa because he had a problematic tweet from when he was 15 years old. I'm old enough to remember when you people on MSNBC were blasting Kevin Hart, saying he couldn't host the Oscars because of a problematic tweet from a decade ago. I'm old enough to remember when a USA Today reporter went after a kid who won a college football award because in high school he said something to his friends on Twitter that they decided was homophobic. You know, there's a really simple thing you can do. Don't take naked pictures and share them with people. I mean, my kids aren't doing it. Uh, Knock on wood that maybe they will one day. I hope they won't. I'm trying to raise them not to. But this has to work both ways. No, no, no. We can't do this to people. There's got to be a statute of limitations on these pictures from last year. This is another issue. It is another issue where we see the media tipping its hat and its hand in bias towards the left. And it makes it really, really easy for the right to conclude that they really are out to get us all. They would never do this with a male politician, particularly a a Republican. And can you imagine if Katie Hill were a pro-life Republican woman? 
if she were a pro-life Republican woman, this would all be about her hypocrisy. Who cared where it came from? By the way, this is what the media does. No one in the media denounced the New York Times when the New York Times was targeting Marco Rubio's wife for speeding tickets in Florida. That was actually a fair game news story in the New York Times, and it was dug up by opposition researchers on the left. And no one batted an eyelash in the media. No one cried foul and said, should we really be doing this about a presidential candidate's wife? No, 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 no. It was fair game because Marco Rubio was running for president. It was fair game. This is a a staggering level of hypocrisy from the media. And I think we all need to recognize that. We all need to recognize that the media is circling the wagons around this member of Congress, and they're doing it time and time again. And this, by the way, this is why I think to some degree you're seeing the Trump administration doing what it's doing on the impeachment stuff. I I, I can't defend the attacks on Bill Taylor and now um, what's his name, who is is going to be testifying uh, before Congress, um, Alexander Vindman. I can't justify the attacks on them. Uh, Sean Duffy was on CNN this morning suggesting that Alexander Vindman, whose family fled the Soviet Union, has more loyalty to Ukraine than the United States. Uh, we we attack Democrats when they accuse uh, Jews in this country of having dual loyalty to Israel. I, I, I don't think I can justify the character attacks on these people. But the media is willing to play hardball to defend the left. So I can understand why so many people who support the president are going in on these character attacks against people who would criticize the president because it's what the media would do. It's what the Democrats would do. Look at the uh, Brett Kavanaugh story. Brett Kavanaugh being nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. We don't have any evidence that Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh ever met each other. There's none. None exists. There are no photos. There's nothing other than Christine Blasey Ford. We have photos in this case of this woman having an affair, which she now admits to, and the media would like to continue to speculate about Brett Kavanaugh, but not a sitting member of Congress. Her husband sent the photos. So? I mean, this media double standard is why people don't trust the press. It is why so many people will continue to stand with the president. Even let's say evidence showed up tomorrow that Donald Trump absolutely 100% wanted Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden in order to beat him in 2020. He wanted Ukraine to be his opposition researcher for 2020. There'll be a lot of Republicans who 10 years ago would have said this is really problematic, who now will say, well, this is okay." And the large reason that will go unstated that will justify in their mind that this is okay is that the media would never do this and the media would cover for it. And it took the president going to extremes to to expose the corruption of Joe Biden because the media is so biased for the Democrats. Republicans have to do stuff like this now just to be competitive. They will justify it, and there will be kernels of truth to it. When the media is more condemnatory of the person who reported because they're not of their tribe than they are in the Me Too era of a Democratic congresswoman violating the rules of Congress, having an affair with a staffer, and apparently multiple staffers, more will apparently be coming forward, allegedly. 
is it any wonder Republicans don't trust the media and think we got to go to to great desperate measures to defend the president because the media will do duck and cover and protection and circle the wagons of the Democrats. I, I, I do understand where people come from on this. Yes. Text recipe to 33777 now. And, and the reason being is because uh, we're at the end of October. The holidays are approaching. And so I will be sending out different recipes that I make along the ways um, that you can do if you get like, for example, for Thanksgiving, typically we have my entire family comes over by the end of the year. I've traveled so much. I'm so exhausted from work. I don't want to travel everywhere. So what I do is uh, I bring my entire family to Georgia we house everybody, we feed everybody, uh, we take care of everybody while they're here for Thanksgiving. And so I have learned to make uh, different breakfasts that you can cook, like a savory and a sweet at the same temperature in the oven for the same amount of time, make them the night before, put them in the fridge, throw them in the oven the next morning, that sort of stuff. So I'll be sending out those sorts of recipes over the coming couple of months as we get into the holiday season. Uh, so if you want those recipes, you need to text the word recipe to 33777. That's all you do. What happens is you get back a, a text message and it says, send me your email address. So then you text back your email address and you're subscribed. That's it. Um, easy, easy. So do that, if you will, if you want these recipes over the next several weeks. Uh, recipe to 33777. Have you all heard about the dog classified? <laughs> the dog's name is not classified. I actually found this exchange very, very funny. Um, the dog, the president released the picture of the dog that chased uh, Baghdadi uh, down the tunnel. The dog wound up getting injured when Baghdadi exploded his suicide vest. And the... Um, the dog's picture has been released, but the dog's name is classified. And what's so very funny about it to me, I thought, is uh, one of the reporters noted on online his exchange with the Pentagon over the dog's name. He wanted to, to get the dog's name, and the dog, uh, they said the dog's name is classified. And he said, is that the dog's name, or is the dog's name, uh, you're not able to tell me the dog's name? And the guy and the person at the Pentagon replied, the dog's name is classified. And he says, okay, so like my, my name is is Pete the dog's name is classified. And the guy said, no, the dog's name is classified. <laughs> he says, I went away thinking his name may be classified, but I'm not sure. So we're going to presume that the name itself is not classified, but that they can't give me the name. <laughs> Very confusing exchange. So uh, some people are saying it's ridiculous. In fact, the, the naturally, the media has rushed out some military forces. This is really ridiculous. I don't know why they can't give the dog's name. The reason they can't give the dog's name is because the dog is tied to an elite, highly classified unit within the military. And they don't want the dog's name known because there are multiple units around the world who have dogs, uh, but they each dog has a different name, and, and this dog could be tied to this particularly classified unit, uh, where the other units are not necessarily classified. The other thing that uh, people from the Pentagon are saying is they don't release the names of the soldiers. They will not release the names of the soldiers who targeted Baghdadi. The dog is a soldier. Why would they treat this dog differently from the other soldiers? In fact, there's a fascinating article in the Washington Post today. Did you guys know this? Uh, that these dogs, they have night vision goggles for the dogs. I had no idea. They have trained the dogs to go into dark places wearing a, a, a type of, of a goggle that allows them to see very much like night vision. They also can halo jump. These dogs are trained to jump from 25,000 feet tethered to their uh, trainer and glide without freaking out. 
I would freak out if I jumped out of a plane at 25,000 feet. These dogs are trained not to do that. That's impressive. That is, it's actually really cool that we have this sort of program in the military where these dogs are trained. Uh, and it was Bill Clinton, of course, in the 1990s who signed the law that allows the trainers to adopt the dogs when the dog service ends. Um, but they're treating the dog as if the dog is a soldier, and so they're not declassifying the dog's name. But the president, who's not actually a big fan of dogs, wants to meet this dog in the White House. When we come back, the media is now more uniform in its outrage over the president's Baghdadi comments. He just can't win with these people. I got lots of keywords you can text. Recipe to 33777 if you want the recipe. Show if you want the daily email. That goes to 33777 as well. Army to 33777 if you want to be an activist. With the Georgia legislature uh, firing up in January, you're probably going to want to be on that list. Um, So now, okay. Um, we got to get into James Clapper, James Clapper on CNN, really upset about the president, uh, talking about Baghdadi. It's amazing that we're actually going here now, uh, with the, with the Democrats, uh, that they're fully on board attacking the president on this. Uh, not surprisingly, I I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, ISIS wasn't the cause of the death of almost 3000 people in, in the United States. And it was more than the world trade center. So uh, I think uh, from a standpoint of symbolism and importance of the country, uh, the taking down the Osama bin Laden had a lot more meaning than this. Do you think that it's a, a point that should even be entertained and being made by the president? Well, I, I think from his standpoint, you know, it, it is a big deal and, and it is a major accomplishment, no question about it. And uh, as usual, the great professionalism of the Special Operations Forces and, uh, and, and intelligence community uh, kind of shown through here. So but I, I just, in terms of racking and stacking here, I think uh, Osama bin Laden takedown was of great import. During this announcement, the president uh He gave a detailed description of what actually happened here of the raid. He talked about some of the intelligence leading up to it. He talked about the communications uh, methods of ISIS. He talked about uh, how these special forces, really the routes that they took to and from this. Did he reveal too much? Well, uh, as as an intel guy, somebody spent his life doing intelligence work, you know, you kind of cringe when you hear uh, a lot of these little details, which in and of themselves, individually, may be not very damaging, but it's the totality of them. And you can be sure our adversaries go to school on all that. Uh, now, having said that, it's inevitable that all this detail is going to come out anyway, just as it came out after the UBL raid. People writing books and articles and all this sort of thing. So as time goes by, more and more detail is, is going to come out. Um, and there's, there's an argument for transparency and openness and all that, but from an intelligence perspective, and I think, I suspect the special operators would just assume uh, there not be so much discussion about it. Uh, first of all, I feel I should owe you an apology. That was probably the most boring clip I have ever played on this radio show. <laughs> He's just not a personable guy. But the, the whole idea here um, is, is just... Um, that it was all everything the president did was bad and um, everything the president says is bad the president's not allowed to to say anything about the way Baghdadi daddy died and you know the media is actually running stories today of we can't fact check the president when he said that Baghdadi daddy died whimpering like a dog 
I, you know, if, if they wanted to take an angle on that, I, I think that the better angle would be, you know, the president says that this dog was a hero. So why do you want to say that Baghdadi died like a dog? Uh, but the media is too too dumb to go there right now. They're they're too deranged in their animosity towards the president. I, instead, they're running all the, these terrible clips. Uh, I mean, like again, Barry McCaffrey, uh, the anti-Trump former general, on with Alex Witt on MSNBC. Alex, something needs to be said. Something uh, needs to be said. The president's language, you know, whimpering dogs, uh, crying, uh, it's just astonishing, bellicose, boastful uh, language is unhelpful. Uh, you know, it's just astonishing to me, it's sort of unpresidential conduct. Uh, he should take great pride in making decisions that allowed this operation to take place. But 50 minutes, he stepped all over the, uh, the context of, of what we ought to be proud of. But, but General, that kind of language, I suppose there, there are two ways that can be interpreted by potentially ISIS followers. It can reduce the stature of al-Baghdadi, correct? I mean, it could make him look like he was a weak man at the end and not this visionary that many will have will held him to. But might it also incite rage from those who followed him as if there was a lack of respect shown to him and then, you know, get their blood boiling, if you will? Well, who knows? Look, it's faux tough guy talk. And to be honest, I don't even think it's very believable. I mean, why would he even know what you know, his personal demeanor was down a tunnel in the darkness? So I, I think it's sort of nonsense, faux tough guy talk. It's un- Tough faux guy talk. It's nonsense. Hey. It is. It, it's just. I. I. Yeah. I. I kind of am at a loss for words. That. That we're now on the second day of the media just refusing to give the president a win on any of this, uh, intensifying their animosity towards the president. And. And let me tie this to the this uh, Katie Hill story. The media is willing to circle the wagons around a Democratic congresswoman engaged in an affair with a staffer while living in a three way relationship in California. And they can't allow the president an attaboy for ordering the raid that got Baghdadi. This all reinforces to a lot of people, and I, I, I don't think it's even the hardcore conservatives. I mean, there's more and more polling that shows just how distrustful the American public is of the media. And I think this this reinforces it. Uh, this this completely reinforces the bias of the media. It completely reinforces the fact that the media is not going to give people a fair hearing. Consider this. Um, there's another random story. I'll tie them all together. You know, random stories that are completely unrelated. I'm an expert. I can do this. The American Academy of Pediatrics has decided that children can use uh, abdominal surgeries for obesity that in fact really fat kids should use the the you know the um, gastric bypass surgery and the uh, what's the one where they, they kind of shrink the stomach through surgery I know people who have had this and, and the uh, various surgeries to to get kids to lose weight that kids could benefit from all of this really they're they're making that argument that your child should have this invasive stuff. This is the same group that is okay with transitioning your children from boys to girls and girls to boys. The media is perplexed, befuddled, and a little bit outraged that this organization 
would suggest that your children should have gastric bypass surgery because they're fat as opposed to getting them out and exercising and and changing their dietary habits. And the media is perfectly okay with them saying that your kids can um, have hormone surgery and otherwise uh, psychological therapy to treat boys as girls and girls as boys. In what sort of upside-down world do we live uh, where they think that's right uh, and they can recognize that the other one's wrong? They're they're both bad. Uh, We should be questioning the sanity of the American Academy of Pediatrics if they are, are willing to engage in this level of quackery on this sort of stuff. But the media is okay with the one because it it fits their it it falls into their ideological core. The the getting your kids abdominal surgery to cure them of being fat doesn't fall within ideological parameters. So the media can look at it and say, yeah, this is this is probably something that kids shouldn't do. They need to be uh, trained on good diets and good exercise habits as opposed to just deciding that a medical procedure can fix their obesity. They can they can look at this because it's outside their core ideological framework. But if it's within their core ideological framework, they can only look at it through their tribe and their ideological lens. So the transgenderism and the American Academy of Pediatrics, ah, yeah, they're right on this one. We should listen to them on this one. Not that one, but on this one because it fits our ideology, yes. On Katie Hill, yeah, it's the reporter who reported it and got the pictures is bad, not not the congresswoman having the affair with a subordinate in violation of House rules. That 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 she's a victim. On the president in Baghdadi, it's the president is bad for taking a victory lap on this when we would have given Barack Obama a victory lap. Oh, but Barack Obama, he gave Osama bin Laden a Muslim burial at sea where they dumped his body in the ocean just like they did with Baghdadi, but. The hypocrisy knows no bounds. Listen to this. Let's talk about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the ISIS leader who died uh, in this U.S.-led raid uh, over the past few days. You're on the Armed Services Committee. Have you and your uh, your colleagues already been formally briefed? We have not, but I do want to salute our troops for their bravery, their courage. Uh, It was a successful operation. They deserve a tremendous amount of credit. And uh, I don't know a single member of Congress who isn't uh, very, very happy and honored by what they did for America. You give the president credit as well? I give the president uh, credit for ordering the operation. I don't give him credit for then saying that our troops should be uh, taking Syrian oil uh, and uh, going and bragging and calling, uh, making a mockery of uh, Baghdadi was killed, because I think that's just going to help uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, recruit. But Sure, he ordered the operation. It was a successful operation. Every American should cheer for that. Yeah, because, God forbid, if it would have been a failure and American troops would have been killed, he would have been blamed for that. He's the commander-in-chief. He made that decision to go ahead and authorize the operation. Well, we're all patriots. We want to, The fact that Baghdadi is dead is good for American security. I salute the troops. I recognize that it was a successful operation. I'm very glad that uh, no Americans were killed. That said... Uh, I hope the president isn't going to now put our troops in Syria to try to expropriate oil. I hope he will tone down the rhetoric. There's no reason to gloat over it and insult Baghdadi and let that video be a recruiting tool uh, for ISIS or al-Qaeda. Um, what part is going to incite them more? That the president said something not nice about their dead leader or the fact that the president ordered their leader dead and he died? What's going to incite them more? I mean... It, My goodness. 
maybe, just maybe, you know, this is like the moving the embassy in Israel. We moved the American embassy in Israel and the exact same people who are saying that the president uh, saying what he said um, is bad. The exact same people who said all of that, that the president, by moving the embassy, would cause war in the Middle East, would cause violence in the Middle East, are the exact same people saying, oh, no, the president's naughty words, they're going to incite violence, and al-Qaeda and ISIS are going to grow because of the president's efforts. I kind of think this is in the same camp. Uh, How can we believe the people? What's ultimately here is they don't want to give the president a win. And they recognize that the president has has scored a big one and they got to do damage control. And the way they're doing damage control is they are trying to downplay his attack. They're trying to say what the president said will make things worse. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got something in my throat. And then they are, are going after the president on the on the oil stuff, which, by the way, the president probably shouldn't have said the oil stuff because there are lots of people in the Middle East who really do believe we're just there for the oil. That that one I do have to give them. The rest of the stuff, though, absolute nonsense, uh, genuine nonsense. The reason, though, that they're doing this, please understand there is a method to their madness, even if you and I disagree with it. The problem is that the Democrats have to confront the fact that Joe Biden is probably still going to be their nominee. He's still ahead in the polls, in large part because of black voter support. Now, Elizabeth Warren is trending up, and Elizabeth Warren is running neck and neck with him, and Elizabeth Warren may give him give him a fight. She may win in Iowa. In fact, there are warning signs for Biden in Iowa and New Hampshire. Biden is saying South Carolina is going to be his firewall, which reminds me of Rudy Giuliani saying that Florida was going to be his firewall. They're both spending a ridiculous amount of money. Um, there's both something there. Um, but my goodness gracious, the, the the idea that Joe Biden as their nominee, it's just it's not going to be well. This is from I, I wanted to play this yesterday, but we got tied up with the Baghdadi stuff. Listen to this 60 minute interview uh, with Joe Biden gas company called Burisma during the time his father was vice president and overseeing U.S. policy in Ukraine. Hunter Biden was reportedly paid 50 to $80,000 a month for several years while serving on Burisma's board. Hunter said the only thing you said to him was, quote, I hope you know what you're doing. That's exactly right. He's a grown man. What I meant by that is, I hope you've thought this through. I hope you know exactly what you're doing here. Meaning what? That's all I meant. Nothing more than that, because I've never discussed my business or their business, my sons or daughters, and I've never discussed them because they know where I have to do my job and that's it, and they have to make their own judgments. But you understand people say, Joe Biden, he's an experienced politician, statesman, knows the issues of Ukraine. Why didn't he just say to his son, this is one to take a pass on, it may not look good? He was already on the board, and he's a grown man. And it turns out he did not do a single thing wrong as everybody's investigated. I, okay, we're dealing with, with right, and one, right and wrong stuff here. We're dealing actually with ethical and unethical. But what I find really interesting is that Joe Biden uh, does not want to talk to his kids about their work. I just find it incredible that Joe Biden essentially says that I'm not going to talk to my kids about their jobs and their careers. Why? 
I can't put this in a fine and diplomatic point, and I should, and I realize it has the potential to get me in trouble, and God bless them there, but by the grace of God go I, and, and given the things that my family is facing, I don't know what the future holds for me and my kids, and I pray regularly about the future, and about my kids, and about their grounding in life, and trying very hard to get them in with good groups of kids now who when when stressful times come with my wife's cancer and whatnot, um, that they're not led astray. But the fact is Joe Biden has some screwed up kids. He does. And I listened to that clip and I listened to it and I listened to it again. And I was frankly somewhat appalled by Joe Biden not wanting to have a relationship with his kids to the extent that he's willing to talk to them about their jobs, their lives, their careers, the the we're in this as a family. We are a family. We stay together as a family. We work as a family. I mean, they're all profiting off the family. The fact that he's not willing to be engaged in his kids work and livelihood that that actually. Uh, that that that. There, there's there's a problem there. That struck me. More than anything else he said in that clip, that struck me that Joe Biden is is unwilling to be engaged in his children's lives in that way. And that has actually gotten his family into a host of issues, including the issue he's presented with. And the Democrats know it, and the Democrats know he's deeply flawed, and so the Democrats know they got to do something. And so what they're doing is they're refusing to give the president any wins at all, even when the president uh, orders the raid that gets the big bad guy, the world's most wanted terrorist. They can't even tell the president, hey, you know what? Job well done. Nope, because they know Biden is coming. So they got to do their best to tear the president down now. Can we discuss Tiger Woods for just a moment? Uh, What a comeback story. Uh, he has tied Sam Snead for the most wins in PGA history. 82 wins. And, and, you know, everybody's making a big deal about Tiger Woods tying the Sam Snead record of, of 82 PGA titles. What about when he surpasses Sam Snead? That's going to be a, a bigger story. Now, for those of you who don't, listen, I, I don't, I'm a terrible golfer. I am happy to come play golf with you. Um, but I would prefer to sit in the cart and drink the beer while you play golf. I I'm, I'm really, really bad at golf and I love to play it. Uh, in fact, my favorite golf course is that I go up to Barnsley gardens in Adairsville. Um, Barnsley in Adairsville is bar none. My favorite course. Although I flipped a golf cart over there one time on accident. It's got this one hill, uh, one hole. Uh, I think it's the, the 15th or the 16th hole, something like that. Uh, no, may, maybe the 11th. Anyway, it is a very, very, very steep decline. And it started raining and the sidewalk was slick and there's a speed bump. And when you go over the speed bump, the, the upper wheel spun out and flipped the cart with me in it. Uh, and I, I'm, oh, it was my shoulder still to this day. And that was a couple of years ago. Ha- has some issues uh, from it being flipped over and, and then sliding down the hill. I was all cut up. They were all freaked out. I, I was I was a- apologetic, and they were all freaked out 
Um, but I, I love the course. The course is beautiful. There are no houses around it. You're just, you're out there. It's, you're in solitude. I love to go up to Barnsley, uh, and just hang out. They've got this cabin in the back. I rent the cabin. I stay there by myself or with my family, uh, and just vegetate for a few days. And it does me good to be there and decompress. I, I love it up there. I love to play golf, but I'm horrible at it. I, in fact, when I go play golf at Barnsley, I try to get the very last tea time of the day because I know there's nobody behind me and more often than not, there's no one in front of me. So I have no witnesses when I play as bad as I do, but I'm impressed with Tiger Woods. Tiger is, uh, he's a year younger than me and he has been playing golf since he was eight. I I didn't even pick up a golf club until I was in law school. Uh, Tiger Woods has been playing golf, uh, since he was a kid with his dad and it was an amazing athlete. And we know he had all sorts of personal demons and habits and surrounded himself with people who fed off of um, the bad habits and the lifestyle. And he collapsed and was injured, his back uh, hurt, had surgeries, and people thought he would never play again. People thought he would retire. And just through sheer will and determination, he came back to prove everyone wrong. And, of course, he won the Masters this past year. I watched the game. I do not watch golf on TV. I, I, I don't understand. I've got friends of mine who... Love to watch golf on TV. I would rather watch paint dry than watch golf on TV. And yet I had to freeze and watch. And there's a great article, Davis Love, uh, who never watches golf on TV, stopped and watched the TV to watch Tiger Woods win. Um, It's going to be really impressive to watch Tiger Woods win the 83rd and surpass Sam Snead. But 82 golf titles in his career, that's remarkable. It really is remarkable. When we come back, the latest on impeachment and schools in Georgia. School reform is coming if the governor can get it through the legislature. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here on the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to call in and be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That is 877-973-7425 is the phone number. This hour is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan, First Liberty of Georgia. Uh, If you are a small business, if you are a medium-sized business, if you want to be a big business and you are anywhere in the nation, not just Georgia, But you're listening live on Facebook right now around the nation. You're listening on the podcast and you need to grow your business and you need access to capital and you don't want to have to deal with bureaucracy of a bank. Go to my friends at First Liberty. Uh, FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. The Frost family, they're great people, big supporters of this program. Highly recommend them. If you're a small or medium-sized business and you want to grow, talk to the Frost at FirstLibertyGA.com. Let them know I sent you. It's a great way to support the show. We have a lot to cover today, and I want to pivot somewhat from the schedule for what I was talking about um, this hour and next hour. There are some impeachment updates you didn't know about. The House of Representatives is going to have a vote. Republicans are already out trying to tear down Alexander Vidman. He is the National Security Council um, worker employee. He is in the Army. He is a lieutenant. He is very distinguished. His family fled the Soviet Union, took up residence in the United States. He and his brother both work for the National Security Council as analysts. And they're deeply concerned about what uh, the brother Alex Vidman heard on the uh, president's phone call with Ukraine's president. They are being accused, Sean Duffy on CNN this morning, accusing him of dual loyalty, which is something that uh, typically Democrats accuse Jews in this country of. Listen, I think Republicans are going to have to do better than uh, assassinate the character of people who have loyally worked 
for the United States. Bill Taylor, now this guy, they're going to have to do something better than that. Uh, they haven't come up with what's next. The process argument now ends. Uh, the process argument clearly worked. Uh, Matt Gatz is the winner here. Nancy Pelosi is going to now have a public vote on impeachment. They said they weren't going to do it. They said they didn't need it. Now they're going to do it and bring this into the public. But there's a catch, and you do need to understand the catch. Uh, Democrats believe that Bill Taylor's testimony was so damaging to the president that the public should see it, that it will change the conversation. And so they do want to bring it public now. And, and now they're essentially calling the, Repu- the Republicans were calling their bluff. And now the Republicans are calling their bluff. I got to tell you, I've had people tell me for weeks on end, weeks, that the reason the Democrats would not have a vote is because they did not have the votes. They've got the votes and they're going to proceed. Um, it may hurt someone like Lucy McBath here in Georgia in the 6th Congressional District that she supports impeachment, but they're going to do it. Uh, they think they've got the votes, and they think based on the information they're getting now uh, that the conversation will shift uh, in their favor. We'll see. I don't I don't think it will, particularly given the media's behavior against the president, but that's where they are. I, I will get back to that, but let me get into Slack here and get the story. I, I tucked away in Slack. Um... Um, 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 where is this? Uh, This is so professional of me, is it not? Everybody goes into Slack and fills up stuff they want me to see. uh, Yes, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. This story, I read it and it actually made me mad. Uh, This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it made me mad at the AJC. This is from Maureen Downey. The headline is, are Brian Kemp's listening sessions with teachers more than lip service? And then the subheading is, you can't fix public schools while promoting increased options for families to flee them. Brian Kemp arrived in the governor's office 10 months ago with no history as an education advocate. In his first year in office, he wooed teachers with a pay raise, but dismayed public education supporters with his embrace of a school choice bill that would use taxpayer money to send students to private schools. The Senate rejected SB 173 in March, in part because it was predicted to eventually cost as much as a half billion dollars annually. However, the bill enjoyed the backing of both Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, suggesting Georgia will likely continue to see a push for a greater diversion of tax dollars to private schools. Georgia already has vouchers that allow students in special education to attend private schools and a private school funding program in which taxpayers contribute money to designated private schools through nonprofit organizations and see their money returned in the state tax credit. The loser is the state treasury, which collects less tax dollars as a result of these generous tax credits. This month, Kemp continued his campaign to win over teachers, holding three listening sessions with state school superintendent Richard Woods. About 400 teachers and counselors met with the governor during sessions at Georgia Gwinnett College, Valdosta State, and the University of North Georgia. The themes were improving the teacher pipeline, eliminating teaching barriers in the classroom, and creating better learning environments. Kemp has to do more than listen and nod his head as teachers share their concerns about the future of the profession. The governor has to make policy decisions that affirm Georgia's commitment to public education and to the importance of developing and retaining a well-trained teacher workforce. I got to tell you. Oh, 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 and there's a there's a, a stat from the American Federation of Teachers, the, the left-wing uh, teachers union group. Here's my problem, and this is what really 
this actually makes me mad. Uh, you know, I, I'm a fairly even-keeled person, and I, I typically don't get orked up about a bunch of stuff. This one makes me mad. It is the logic of this article and the the columnist, and I think it's a column, not a report. Yeah, editorials and opinion pieces. She's an opinion writer. It, it is the logic of the public school advocates that, yes, let's admit the public schools suck. Let's admit it. If your child lives in a wealthy area in the right zip code, they may have a good public school and we will pollute those public schools with social justice warrior nonsense and ensure that the boys can go to the girls' bathroom when they want. But if you live in a poor area, your schools aren't going to be great. And do you know what the solution is from these people? The solution is to keep your kids in the bad school. And, you know, maybe one day the school will get better if everyone is forced to keep their kids in the public schools. You know, I hear this all the time from people on the left, from friends of mine who are upset with me that I send my kids to a private Christian school. You know, if you're given up, if you're given up, then you're not going to see the public schools get better. I hear this all the time. Y'all, my child is not your damn social justice project. My child is not your experiment. My child is not your tool of indoctrination. My child does not need to suffer through your failing public schools and ruin their opportunities in life because you think we need to make a better commitment to public school. If you can't fix your public school system without my child being there, that's your problem. It's not my problem. And that's, that is what we're talking about here. The left in this country has decided that your children and mine must be hostages to failing public school systems if those schools are ever one day going to improve. And what do they do while our children are hostages? They take the opportunity to indoctrinate them on social justice causes. They spend more time teaching your child about the transgender snowman than they do about how to read, write, and do math. Math itself is polluted by ethnocentric studies where we got to find out how math has been used to keep the black man down. I just want my kid to learn how to do math. I want my kid to learn how to count. I want my kid how to learn how to read, how to write. I want my kid how to function in society. My child is not your hostage to improve your public school system. If you can't fix your public school system without my child, maybe you should shut down your public school system and outsource it to the private sector that might be able to do a better job than you've done. I resent like hell the idea that my kids and your kids and everyone else's kids need to be stuck in a failing school system so that it'll improve. And what are they going to improve it with? Tests. The public school system solution is indoctrination of left-wing social justice warrior causes and tests. Lots of standardized tests. Let's see how your kid stacks up against the next kid. Let's put all the kids together. And now we're going to shake up the school system so that your kid has to be bussed for an hour to go to a different school to make sure that everything is balanced and racially harmonious so that everybody can get a bad education regardless of whether they're rich, poor, black, white, brown, what have you. 
I would much rather my children get a good education. And if that means I got to pull them out of school and put them somewhere else or pull them out of school and homeschool them, I would much rather do that. And they're coming after the homeschoolers too for doing that. How dare you pull your school kid out of a failing school? Apparently, you have a constitutional obligation to educate your child. And if you educate your child too well, well, then you're bad and full of privilege. And that's where we are with this. The governor of the state of Georgia wants parents to be able to take their children out of a public school and put them where they want to get a good education. He wants the law to apply to rich parents. He wants the law to apply to poor parents. He wants the law to apply to black parents. He wants the law to apply to white parents. He wants the law to apply to everyone to allow parents to take their children out of a poor, failing school and put them in a good private school that the private school will have them so the child can succeed. And the public school industry is much more concerned about the school succeeding than the child succeeding. So the child's got to stay in the failing school and fail as opposed to letting the parents send the child somewhere else. Oh, if the parents can pay for themselves, then yeah, we we have a nation. We have a lot of progressives in this country who say income inequality is getting worse. And oh, by the way, our schools are failing and only the rich people are allowed to get their children out. You want to improve income inequality? Allow the poor kids to go to the rich kids schools. The private schools, let the taxpayers take care of it. The liberal mindset on this is the logic of an insane asylum. And I I feel very, very strongly about this. We have an Atlanta Journal-Constitution opinion writer attacking the governor of the state of Georgia for daring to say that poor kids should be able to go to a rich kid's private school to get a better education instead of having the poor kids stay held hostage in the failing public school. And you know how they're going to do it? There's money that flows from the state. The state sends each school taxpayer money per child. And if that child goes to a different school or withdraws from school, the money goes away. So if the kid wasn't at this public school, the school would not be getting this money. So the governor just wants to say, let's have that money always follow the kid. If the kid wants to go to private school, the money goes nowhere. Let's have the money go to the private school to help the kid get an education, to help the poor family pay for the kid's school. But no, we can't have that. This is why we can't have nice things. We got to ruin the kid's education. You have a poor mother who is engaged in the welfare and education of her child in the inner city in Atlanta, surrounded by failing schools, and she has the opportunity to get taxpayer dollars to send her child to a private school where the child will get a better education and get ahead and get out and make a career and elevate the entire family out of poverty without having to get a sports scholarship to his college. Just a really good education that you can't get in the local public school. And the local public school advocates say, we can't have that. No, no, we can't have that. No, we got to have all of the kids screwed up and we got to have all the kids failing together as opposed to letting that one child with the engaged parent get out and prosper. That would be bad. That would be a sin. I mean, it really is an issue of, of sin and salvation. For the public school system, now, they don't use that rhetoric, but that's what they're talking about here, sin and salvation. Everybody's got to stay in the sin together. Everybody's got to stay in the failure together. No one's allowed to elevate themselves out of the failing public school unless everybody can do it. And the only way to get everybody out of it is to have everybody held hostage together in the failing public school. And 
To heck with Brian Kemp for thinking that parents who want to get their child a better education should be allowed to. The parents are bad and Brian Kemp is bad for suggesting it. And he's got to listen to the teachers. He's got to listen to the teachers. You know what many of the teachers say? Many of the teachers say our public school systems are failing. Many of our teachers are leaving the public school systems. Apparently, the kids aren't allowed to leave the public school systems, but the parents and the teachers are allowed to leave the public school system. The teachers can quit their jobs and go somewhere else because the schools are failing. They're filled up with a bunch of bureaucrats who are more interested in social justice indoctrination than they are actually getting the kids an education. So the teachers are quitting. And worse teachers may be coming in, maybe better teachers. But the teachers come and go and the kids are stuck. And anytime someone like the governor of the state of Georgia proposes a solution where the children themselves are allowed to get out of that public school and go to a better place, just like the teachers are allowed to do, well, he's got to be condemned. And the parents have to be shamed and the children have to suffer because it's not about getting a better education. It's about liberals feeling better about the public education system while the children continue to fail. That's liberalism in a nutshell, holding your children hostage so that they can feel good about themselves and their education system. I applaud the governor for trying to do better. And I can't believe that anyone at the AJC would condemn him for wanting to help poor kids get a better education. Uh, by the way, you should also know that this uh, writer at the AJC has, has opposed the Tebow bill in the past. And in fact, the, the AJC itself, every bit of reporting that's ever been done on the Tebow bill has been highly, highly, highly uh, negative. And what is the Tebow bill? The Tebow bill allows homeschool children to participate in organized uh, sporting activities at schools. Now, you would think for a group of people who want your child to be stuck in a failing public school, that this may be a good way to show the parents the opportunities that come with public schools, allow the kids in the homeschool community to go participate in the local school, in the athletic program, in the after-school programs. I'll let them go. Let them see what opportunities are available in the public school. But no, 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 no. Uh, can't, can't do that. No, no. They routine. By the way, the, the Tebow bill is going to come up again this year. Uh, I very much support it, and I hope uh, I'll be re able to rely on you guys. You know, it was it was North Georgia Republicans who killed the Tebow legislation. North Georgia Republicans killed the Tebow legislation. Uh, they walked out on it, so they didn't have to vote on it. And uh, I, I every year I rely on a phone system that allows you to connect to your members of the legislature and turn you into good activists. And I hope you'll consider so doing this year. Uh, you can text the word ARMY to 33777. And when the legislature in Georgia meets in session in January, I will keep you up to date on this program with legislation that is pending before the legislature. Uh, and uh, I will make it very easy for you to connect to your member of the legislature. But you got to text the word army to 33777. Um, I make it so easy. You can do it just by looking at your cell phone. You, you don't, you, you, I mean, you don't even have to dial someone's number. You click a link and I can connect you to your member of the state legislature and the like. Um, but education reform is going to be a big issue. And I am a very big advocate of education reform because of my upbringing. I grew up in Dubai. 
And in Dubai, we went to a very prestigious school, globally prestigious American school that was funded by the local oil companies, uh, one of which my dad worked for, Conoco, uh, which ran the Dubai Petroleum Company. And I will never forget, we moved home to the United States uh, before, right before the Gulf War broke out. It was very clear that war was coming, and they moved all the American families home. Um, they didn't know when it was coming, but Saddam Hussein was amassing forces on the Kuwaiti border in 1990. So we, we packed up, we moved home. Uh, the normal route was you went to boarding school and I didn't go to boarding school. I went home to rural Louisiana and for several months went to a private school in rural South Mississippi, the Wilkinson County Christian Academy. Well, when, uh, the war broke out, gas prices skyrocketed to the outrageous price of $1.25. And my parents decided it was too expensive for me to get up and drive 30 minutes to this private school every day um, that I needed to go to the public school. And I hated the public school. And I'll never forget my first day in public school. There was a guy, I was in English class, and a guy wanted to know what this word meant. The word was liberty. Didn't know what the word meant. I will never till the day I die, forget that. And Linda Priest, who was the teacher in my 10th grade class, just looked at the kid and couldn't process that he didn't know what the word meant. And he didn't. The other word that that um, was confusing to people was committee. They couldn't understand the concept of committee, but liberty was the one. And that, that had a profound impact on me on public school and, and the effects on public school and the like. Uh, and I'm, I'm, it just, it, it aggravates me to hear people take the position that you must be stuck in a public school. And if everybody goes to the public school, then the public schools will become better. And that's not the way the world, it, it reminds me of my mom, my, my mom. And, and if my mom's listening, I love you, but my mom doesn't use coupons at the grocery store, even though she could save money. Years ago, my mother told me that uh, she, she had a friend from Germany, Mr. Hans, who told her that coupons were a scam, that if everyone stopped using the coupons, uh, the stores would just lower the prices. My mom doesn't use coupons. Well, you're not going to get everybody to stop using coupons. Um, you're not going to get everybody to stop sending their kids to private schools. It's their right to do it unless you're going to ban private schools. Good luck with that. And the idea that other kids can't go to private school, that they've got to be stuck, just outrages me at a moral level, and it's unfortunate. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, uh, 877-97-ERIC. Uh, that's 877-973-7425. Uh, have you heard, uh, it's Oglethorpe County is where the problem is. Uh, Oglethorpe County, the county seat is Lexington. I saw this uh, in the AJC a uh, while back uh, in Oglethorpe County. It's a rural area outside of Athens to the east of Athens and They've got a situation there where uh, trucks are bringing farm waste and they're spreading it in fields in Oglethorpe County. And you've got a lot of people who are moving out there in, in nice neighborhoods and large land and they're overcome with the stench. And they've gone out there and they found in a lot of the, these fields where the, the waste is being spread, 
that it's got uh, tampons, condoms, and, and other things in it, clearly showing that it's septic tank discharge that's being spread and, and not the animal waste uh, that people are claiming. Well, it, there's actually there's a, a conference going on right now on, on alternative energy in the southeast, and one of the groups that is there um, is uh, Rosalind Alternative Energy. And essentially, they make natural gas through pig poop. And uh, one of the guys who's there is is a friend of my producer, Charlie, Brandon Butler. And it was just perfect timing with the story coming out to, to have Brandon on. Brandon, thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so and just to, to circle back for everybody, um, there's a story, and, and I, I'm ambushing you with this, I realize, but in Oglethorpe County is a rural county outside of Athens, Georgia, where the University of Georgia is, and uh, farmers are pay are taking money from the major uh, producers of farm waste from pigs and, and chickens, and they're spreading it in fields out there, supposedly as fertilizer, but even a lot of farmers are complaining that the smell out there has gotten overwhelming, and a lot of it actually appears to be from septic tanks that people are doing, and they're trying to come up with other ways instead to use the pig poop and the chicken poop and stuff, and so it was just, it was perfect timing when Charlie sent me this email that you were in, in the state to be able to talk to you about what you guys do. Well, it's unfortunate if they're if they actually are spreading anything from septic tanks. Uh, we of course don't don't deal with that. What we deal with is large animal farms, specifically swine. Our company it's called it's actually Raceline Alternative Raceline. Energy, which mm-hmm. is a, a German spelling, uh, and we're in a partnership with Smithfield Foods, which is the largest hog producer in the world. And right now we're operating nine large CAFOs in North Missouri, and that's a, a confined animal feeding operation. In North Missouri alone, we're producing about 2 million hawks per year. So wow. there is a significant amount of waste. And there are, there are rural communities that have to deal with that odor, and there's environmental concerns that come with having that much waste. But our system, what we do is we come in and we tarp over these open pit lagoons. So we're capturing the methane and other gases that are being emitted, keeping them out of the atmosphere, but also creating a lot of uh, ecological benefits for people in and around that area and reducing the odor is one of those. It's amazing when you stand next to an open pit lagoon and smell it. It's not pleasant by any means, but when you stand next to one that's tarped over, it really does almost take the odor completely away. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so, and you guys are, you're generating natural gas from this. This reminds me of a, a setup near me where you've got a brick company uh, that has tapped into the local landfill to extract the methane to ki- fire its kilns for, for its brick. So, I mean, definitely proven methodology there. And, I mean, what successes are you guys having with this? Yeah, so methane capture off of landfill is in our industry. Uh, we're having great success with it. This year we're going to produce about 150,000 decatherms, uh, which we measure in diesel gallon equivalents. So we're, we're taking diesel gallons off of the roadway. Right now, the, the major market for this gas is in California. They have the low-carbon fuel standard out there, and they value your gas based on your carbon intensity score. So, so how much carbon are you basically producing uh, when you make your gas, transport your gas, and use your gas? And our company has been able to do, achieve the lowest carbon intensity score ever, which makes our gas the most valuable. And what makes it so special is it's, it's really going from the hogs into the lagoon, we're taking it from under the tarps over the lagoons to a gas purification system right on site 
and then we're injecting into the natural gas grid from our gas purification system. So there's really no there's really no uh, fuel being expended or fossil fuel being used to produce or transport our gas. Now let, let me let me follow up with you on something you said. So you're 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 injecting it into the natural gas system. So is that like the the pipelines that run all over the country? It, it flows into there, or I mean, how, how do exactly. you distribute this? Yeah, it, it it by the time we're done cleaning and purifying these uh, these gases, it is the same chemical compound as natural gas that you would extract from the ground, say through fracking. Good grief! That, that, that's yeah, actually pretty incredible. It is incredible. Uh, our founder is a fellow named Rudy Raceline. Uh, Rudy has made his uh, success in life in the aluminum beverage can industry. So Raceline and Associates is the world's leader in modular construction of aluminum beverage can factories all over the world. And I was running a conservation organization when I got to know Rudy as a friend and a supporter. And the more I learned about this process, the more I said, I just have to be part of this. This is uh, something that I think can really, really revolutionize uh, energy production, especially in parts of the country that I care about, which are really rural communities and, and the heartland where I live in Missouri. Well, so I'm I'm wondering about the viability of this. You've you've got this up in Missouri. I mean, I, I'm assuming you can't just stay with, with a, some pig farms in Missouri, and you got to be able to spread it elsewhere. So, I mean, how are you guys looking at expanding this? Well, that's the beauty of being partnered with Smithfield. We're already in operation in Utah. Um, of course, North Carolina and this East Coast area has a lot of these farms as well. So we'll be moving into this neighborhood. Uh, But we're also working outside of just that partnership with Smithfield. We just built digesters on dairies in Green Bay, Wisconsin with DTE. Uh, We're working with Dominion Energy, uh, who is looking to uh, inject a lot more renewables into their portfolio. So the thing is, is we're behind in America in renewable energy Mm -hmm. production. Germany alone has nearly 8,000 of these anaerobic digesters already in operation. So we have much more potential to, uh, to spread further, and hopefully we'll be able to do that in, in a timely manner. Now, you're focusing on pigs. Uh, have you have you looked at, I mean, in Georgia, we have tons of poultry farms. Uh, have you looked at alternatives beyond pigs? Absolutely. So we're already operating on some dairies, and we have a lot of poultry farms in Missouri, too, and, and eventually we'll be doing poultry, I would suspect. Nice. Well, okay. So um, I, I don't. I don't take up all of your time with it, but I'm actually I'm fascinated by this, and it's so timely with this topic from from Oglethorpe with them spreading essentially uh, pig and poultry waste into fields. I know that there there actually is a huge problem with environmental runoff, in particular when when farmers do this. So, I mean, what is your environmental setup to to protect on on the pollution front? That's really what our company is founded on. So, so Rudy is a landowner in North Missouri and, and really fell in love with prairie. And prairie is our most devastated landscape in this country. If you look at a cornfield or a soybean field in the Midwest now, you're, you're probably looking at what used to be native prairie. And prairie brings so many ecological benefits to our landscape. When you look at corn, it grows tall, but the root system barely goes into the soil. So a corn, a corn root system can be six inches deep. Prairie plants, you look at them, they're maybe a foot or two foot tall, but their root systems can be 10 to 15 feet deep into the soil. So our our modern practices of agriculture has degraded soil across our country to the point where we're seeing horrible runoff into our rivers and stream systems. In North Missouri, where we operate, the Grand River watershed, if you're up there looking at it from afar, you think this is a beautiful river. 
but really it's one of the most polluted rivers in the country when it comes to nitrogen and phosphorus runoff coming off of these sloped hillsides that people are trying to farm. Because of uh, corn's value in the ethanol market, we've seen farmers push extensively into every marginal piece of land that they have that they can put crops on. Mm -hmm. So our Horizon 2, which is the second phase of our company, is a vision to restore 30 million acres of prairie along our waterways across the heartland. And this program would work similar to CRP, except we wouldn't have the government involved. It would be a market-based solution to bring prairie back, and eventually we'll be able to sustainably harvest these grasses and digest them into renewable natural grasses. So by being able to enter contracts with landowners and farmers over a 10-, 15-year period, we'll be able to pay them to put ecological services back on the ground, and we'll harvest those grasses like a crop and turn them into renewable natural gas providing all of these benefits that will stop phosphorus and nitrogen from washing into our rivers and streams and will keep our soil on the ground and generate new soil, actually making agriculture more valuable. You know, I got to say, uh, before we get out of here, I I hear all the time, particularly uh, from certain segments of the environmentalist movement, that we've got to have more government involvement and and the government's got to do these things. And, And I continue to be amazed at the amount of innovation within the free market and the private sector in these areas, doing already so many of the things that so many people say the government's got to step in and do. No, we're the opposite. If you look at if you look at CRP over the last, which is the Conservation Reserve Program, which pays landowners and farmers not to plant their ground. Back in 1990, there was 40 to 45 million acres. Uh, 2018, we're down to 24 million acres. And in Missouri, if you don't sign up that day, you're not getting in when they open it, and that's for like a 10-year period. So we know that there's a demand for people that don't want to put land into into crops, but the government's not getting the job done we have an opportunity to step in with a market-based solution and provide more income for these landowners and stop them for, from wasting money on input costs of planting agriculture on lands that just aren't going to produce a yield that's profitable. So if you're only yielding 35 to 40%, you're not going to make a profit. It's already hard to be a farmer in this country. Mm-hmm. We hope to offer a solution that is just market-based, and we'll buy your grass and we'll turn it into gas. That's fantastic. Listen, thanks for taking the time to stop by. It was just perfect timing with the story from last week. And I know you didn't know about the story. You reached out to Charlie, and I was like, man, this I've been meaning to talk about that story, and this is the perfect tie-in. Well, I'm a fan of the show, so it was uh, my pleasure to be on. Thanks very much. Brandon Butler uh, with, with Raceline Alternative Energy. Uh, and, again, so the, their major concept here is they take the pigways. You, you, go, you take, go to Oglethorpe County outside of Athens, and you will find this stuff being spread in fields or, or in um, essentially channels, lakes that are being built to contain the pig waste. And they tarp it over to minimize the smell and convert it into natural gas, which is then put right into the... But we've got in our neighborhood where we live, actually behind my house, there's a natural gas pipeline. Uh, and they actually just upgraded it uh, over the summer. They were working in the middle of the night. Apparently, they shoot a light down it um, that can be detected if there's there are leaks or anything, um, and they run natural gas down there. And so this company can produce natural gas from pig waste and pump it straight into that natural gas system and make it essentially renewable energy. And again, I don't want to go too deep in this. We're close to a commercial break here, but... I hear time and time again, and I know you do as well, 
that we've got to have the government involved in this. If the government is not involved, if the government doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. And the government's got to step up. And we're seeing, for example, in California with a lot of the problems out there, um, that a lot of the problems are caused by the government stepping in and the government putting in all sorts of mandates on the energy sector, that the energy sector is having to uh, cut uh, in areas for like line maintenance with PG&E in order to maintain the renewable energy standards of the government. Meanwhile, here comes a company that says, we got all this pig waste. The pig waste generates gas and chemicals we can capture and turn into natural gas. And it's it's the free market doing it. And we should be supporting stuff like this. Uh, if you're in Oglethorpe County, I, I highly recommend you, you check them out. This is a, a problem in, in Oglethorpe. And you know what's happening is the industrial farm companies that are coming in and they're pouring the waste out into the fields, they're suing the county. Now, the county commission is run by a bunch of farmers. And it's the farmers who are complaining about the quality of life in their county being degraded by these industrial uh, farms moving in and, and spreading this waste everywhere. The whole place stinks. And there's more and more evidence it's coming not just from farms, but it's coming from septic tanks. And the reason they know it is is how many how many pigs, not, I mean, not to be crass here, and I apologize, but how many pigs and chickens you use tampons and condoms? And that's what they're finding in the waste in these fields, uh, which suggests it's not coming from the pigs. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to go there, people. We're not going to go there. Um, it, it suggests it's coming from septic tanks uh, and that it's septic tank companies that are are basically spreading human waste. Uh, so they got to clean it up. And now they're in a lawsuit with a bunch of these companies. And these companies are essentially trying to bankrupt the county uh, so that the county's got to concede. And the farmers aren't going to concede because it's their quality of life. It's the environment. It, it's, uh, it pollutes the rivers and streams. It, it pollutes the family farm. It degrades the quality of existence. It spreads disease and flies. The flies in Oglethorpe County are notorious during the summer now because of this. And you want farmers to be able to make money by renting their land to have this stuff spread, but they're clearly doing something when you've got human waste um, being found. A human debris and, and instruments in the waste. There's something going on out there in Oglethorpe County. So here comes this company, Raceline Alternative Energy, that will capture the, the pig and chicken waste and the cow waste and turn it into natural gas and clean renewable energy. But, of course, the left doesn't like it because it's natural gas and you're burning natural gas. And yet, if we're not willing to embrace natural gas, we're going to have a real hard time cleaning up the environment the way they want. This this is always the the, the, the crazy thing with me. Take, take Plant Vogel over in outside of Augusta, the nuclear energy facility. They are the left is beside themselves that Georgia Power is building a nuclear power plant. Well, if you want us to stop burning coal, we need natural gas, and we need man. My voice just broke. Natural gas. And we need nuclear power, and they don't want us to have it. So uh, kudos, and thanks to Brandon for stopping by. Raceline Alternative Energy is the name of the company. Maybe something the folks over in Oglethorpe County need to look into. You know, speaking of of the um, commercial waste issue, uh, California is just in a world of hurt now. They're saying that the power grid in Northern California in particular may have to go on and off for a decade and you do need to understand this, uh, and I, I know I mentioned it a couple of times, but more evidence is coming out. So, for example, 
let me back up here. Uh, environmentalists tied to the state of California from left-wing interest groups are saying that this is the new normal in Northern California and that this is all tied to cyclical patterns changing in global warming, uh, the spread of wildfire and wind. But there's actually a lot of evidence that's not true. There's well-documented histories of these wildfires at this time of year and drought uh, going back uh, for over 100 years. The patterns and the time frames have not just uh, changed. The intensity of the winds have not necessarily changed. The, the rain patterns have not changed. And so it looks like we're dealing with something else. And what we appear to be dealing with in Northern California is governmental bureaucracy run amok. California went all in on government-mandated green energy. And they decided uh, along the way, one of the things that they would do is they would mandate that the energy companies in California had to convert rapidly to alternative energy systems, in particular wind and solar. And if the energy company did not do that, then they would be fined. And they made the fine so burdensome as to incentivize their rapid shift. Well, PG&E, the big utility company up there, decided that the only way to meet the deadlines were to stop maintaining their infrastructure and spend that money to meet the deadlines. Otherwise, the, the, um, the fines would be punitive. So their infrastructure has declined over time while they've been meeting the wind and solar goals. Well, they've also been spending lavishly. The, the, the company does not have clean hands in this, but last year there was a big fire, and the state said that the power company was liable for the fire because a power transformer blew out, cast sparks, and they say that's what started the fire. And, and by all accounts, that seems to be the case. So the, the power utility had to pay the damages, and so they spent all the money on the first they spent all the money on the solar power and they spent all the money on the wind power then they spent all the money on the liability issues and so they've continued to allow their lines to deteriorate and now essentially they're in a hostage situation with the state of South oh, state of South Carolina state of California where they're saying you, you, I'm sorry we we've complied with all of your demands and now you've got to comply with ours we don't have any more money and we've got we've to raise the rates on power. We've got to make power even more expensive. California has the most expensive power in the country right now. And they're going to have to raise it even further so that the power company can upgrade all of its lines as quickly as possible. And until those lines are upgraded, because they're going to be held liable for any fire that starts, they're going to turn off the power so that they're not held liable. So California can, if it likes, it can pass a law that prohibits the power company from being held liable for forest fires, but they're not going to do that. So the power company's got to protect itself and it's protecting itself by shutting down the power. And now some in the state want the state to take over the power company because they're saying that they're the power company's trying to protect its shareholders because of the liability issues. So the only way to stop them from putting shareholders above the public is for the public to take it over. That's not going to work well. I mean, look at any socialist country and their power companies. I mean, this is third world stuff. And it's all to comply with onerous, burdensome regulations by the state of California uh, that PG&E is having. And they're spinning as best they can in California now to say, no, no, that's not really true. It's all an environmental issue, and they're having to deal with the environmental issue. That's not really true. It actually is that the company failed to upgrade its lines. 
and it failed to upgrade its lines. One, there was also a, a high environmental cost uh, with regulatory costs in California to upgrade the lines, but also because they had to comply with all the other burdens. They only had so much money to go around and better to build the solar plants. That's one reason, by the way, Georgia Power wants to raise rates in this state is to continue to do maintenance and not have the problems that PG&E has run into. They're probably not going to raise it as much as they would like because the state won't let them, but they're going to raise the rates to avoid stuff like what's happening in California. So apparently there's a thing, a national day of outrage, and there's going to, oh, it's already happened. It's a national day of outrage. Uh, How much more outrage can we have? A, A national day of outrage protest. Uh, it was to honor uh, the 28-year-old who was shot uh, by officers in Fort Worth, Texas. People gathered Monday night outside the Georgia State Capitol. They said they're not only honoring the the uh, Tatiana Jefferson, um, but they're not just honoring Jefferson, but all black people who have died in police-related shootings. I got to tell you, some of the video of this stuff is insane um the officer body cameras now showing in one case a police officer shot and killed someone whose hands were raised had no gun or anything uh, whose hands were raised while raised and surrendering to the police was shot police body cams are changing things man they 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 really are um but national day of outrage i'll tell you the other outrage that's out there is georgia is beginning a three hundred thirty thousand person purge of the voter rolls now I know stuff about this, and it frustrates me that this is not getting out in the media. I was an elections lawyer in Georgia, and I remember when the Help America Vote Act was passed. The Help America Vote Act was passed by Congress after the 2000 election, and one of the requirements was to clean up voter rolls, and states have done it in different ways, uh, but a lot of states do purge their voter rolls after a number of years, and Georgia has a lengthy process by which voter rolls are purged. I need to explain to you this process so that you understand how not nefarious the process is in Georgia. What happens in Georgia is if you don't vote in two even-numbered year election cycle. So that's three elections. That's two. uh, That's a presidential election cycle, a non-presidential election cycle with statewide officers on the ballot, and a municipal election. That is uh, one, two, three years. After those three years are up, the state of Georgia will send you a letter and say, hey, you haven't voted in the last three election cycles. Are you still there? And the way the voter can do it is the voter can show up and vote, or the voter can reach out to the Board of Elections and say either I'm here and I want to vote, or I I, I don't live there, or I don't want to vote, whatever. And the state enters that information, and they enter that information, and it doesn't go into effect. They just note it. So you have your presidential election year, you have your off year, you have your uh, statewide officer election, you have another presidential election year, you have another municipal election year, you have another off year, you have another uh, midterm election cycle, and then you have another, and then you have the presidential election cycle again. So you've got three presidential election cycles. And then eight years later, eight years after after the, the person first decided not to vote, 
then the state can purge. In other words, you got to go through three years of this voter not voting for the state to notify them. And then another five years before the state's allowed to take them off the voter rolls. So for the people who, the 330,000 people the state wants to remove from the voter rolls, these people haven't voted in, in eight years. They haven't voted in eight years. And you know what the state's going to do? The state's going to reach out to all of them one more time now and say, hey, we're about to remove you from the voter rolls. Let us know if you want to stay on. Eight years have gone by since these people voted. That's, that's it. And that gets missed in the conversation. It's not like they're taking people who registered to vote last year and didn't show up and say, oh, these people registered to vote in 2018 and then they didn't go vote for Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp, so let's throw them off the rolls. No, it's people who, what happened eight years ago? It, it would have been when Barack Obama was president before running against Mitt Romney. That's where we are right now. And by the way, they're not allowed to purge voters uh, during even-numbered election years. They, they cannot purge voters in a year where there's a federal election on the ballot. It's got to be an off year where there are only municipal elections. So they can't do it next year because there is a federal election. So it's got to be in an odd-numbered year where there are typically no federal elections before they do this. And that's where we're headed. Democrats are outraged by this. There's no reason for Democrats to be outraged by it. Uh, these people haven't voted in eight years. They're going to be circled back to one more time and say, hey, we're going to take you off the voter rolls. And do you know why a lot of these people are on the voter rolls? Because of voter uh, driver's licenses. A lot of these people tend to be either elderly or young, and it has to do with driver's licenses. When you are young now, thanks to uh, the motor voter legislation that was actually opposed by Paul Coverdale, the late uh, Georgia senator, when you go get your driver's license, typically you're automatically registered to vote now in Georgia. So a lot of the people who are going to be purged from the, from the voter rolls are people who registered to vote when they got their driver's license and have never showed up. Millennials who never have bothered to vote. And in fact, they are the least likely segment of the population to vote. That's all that's going on here. There's no grand conspiracy here uh, to suppress the vote. There's no grand conspiracy here to throw people off the rolls. There's no grand conspiracy here to punish people. And that that's, that's what you need to know. But of course they're, they're experts these days at ginning up outrage um, over purging voters from the voter rolls. Now we need to get into impeachment. Um, the impeachment trial is going to become public. Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have decided that they're going to make it public. They're going to proceed, uh, with a public vote on Thursday of impeachment. And this means the Republicans are going to have to get their talking points together. The reason they're going to need new talking points is because, they have said forever that this being done behind the scenes improved the process was um, a corrupt process, a partisan process, an illegitimate process. That's the word I'm looking for, an illegitimate process. 
And frankly, the process argument worked. Uh, Matt Gatz and the Republicans storming the hearing last week worked. The media kept calling them a mob. It was it was a white man mob. Uh, that's how the media referred to Gatz and the Republicans storming the doors of the um, of the impeachment investigators. It was just a bunch of white men. And um, well, it turns out it worked. In fact, I, I'm trying to pull up this audio here. Yes, um, this audio. Listen, listen to this audio. The the media talking point of the day on the the pathetic mob of white men storming the the meeting. Republicans storm a closed door impeachment hearing. Our Republican colleagues evidently have freaked out. It's a pathetic stunt, and quite honestly, it looked like a mob scene. A shocking scene today on Capitol Hill, one that some Democrats say resembled a mob. I mean, these congressmen today rushing into a secure briefing like like a mob. In this country, we have the rule of law, not a rule by mob. Republicans on the Hill stage of flash mobs when they're not flash mobbing. Acted like a mob. Uh, it looked like a kind of a mob party. Had that mob mentality. I don't know what good that news cycle did them because they looked like such jerks. Those white guys, those middle-aged, boring, nerdy-looking white guys. I haven't seen a group of white guys that angry since they found out their Don Henley tickets were obstructed view. We just saw a bunch of white men, and I just thought to myself, this is not what America looks like right now. What happened yesterday was a high school prank by a bunch of 50-year-old white men. These pathetic weenies walking down that step like lemmings. Looks like a protest outside a pharmacy that ran out of Viagra. The closest thing to, quote, civil unrest that they have ever seen. Have you ever seen anything like nope. what Congressman Gates did today? Of obnoxious political behavior, this ranks high. How pathetic, and Willie and I were just talking, just as men, how do you go home and look at your wives and look at your children? Well, just I, I, think, as I think most, pathetic, I think, I think. Pathetic people. Uh, it worked. It worked. The, they, the, the process argument worked. And now Nancy Pelosi is going to have a vote. Now, here's the problem. The, the argument has long been that the Democrats didn't have the votes, but they do have the votes. They actually do have the votes uh, to begin the impeachment process. And there are some Democrats who are going to be put in awkward positions. Lucy McBath, here in the 6th Congressional District, that's the Atlanta suburbs. Karen Handel had the seat, uh, lost it to Lucy McBath in 2018, is fighting to get it back. Uh, McBath is going to have to vote on the impeachment matter, and she's going to have to decide that she thinks there's enough there there that uh, voters in that district will forgive her because the polling in the 6th on impeachment is very bad for Lucy McBath. Um, the polling in the 6th is that most voters think this should be settled at the election. And if she does this, she's kind of defying where the, um, where, where the voters in the district are. But the Democrats now are going to bring this into the light of day, and there's another issue Republicans have to contend with now. Uh, they're still, like Kevin McCarthy, the, the leader of the House of and I'm not a Kevin McCarthy fan. You, you need to understand that. I, I really am not. I think the Republicans could do better and have someone smarter. Um, McCarthy is now taking the position that uh, the process was corrupt and illegitimate, and it doesn't matter now that they're having this vote and making it public. It's still a corrupt, illegitimate process. Wait a second. Uh, you guys said they needed to have a vote, that you would take it seriously if there was a vote, and that you're not taking it seriously because there was no vote. Well, now they're going to have a vote, and you're still going to call it uh, illegitimate and corrupt. Uh, you got to have a better talking point. And uh, let me give you the, the talking point I've given 
to Republicans, and uh, some of them like it, some of them don't. And it's this. We have an election a year away. Let the voters decide. Period. End of story. You waited. You've been wanting impeachment since the president got elected. You people have said you were going to impeach him. Uh, let, let's not forget the, the Democratic congresswoman who said we're going to impeach the blankety blank. Uh, right after the election, they've been wanting to impeach him the whole time. They dragged it out. And now they've run out the clock. They're going to interfere with the Iowa caucuses. They're going to interfere with the New Hampshire primary. They may interfere with the South Carolina primary on the Democratic side. Leave it for the voters. Leave it for the voters and let the voters decide next year for themselves. I think that's the way to go forward with this. Uh, I think the way for the Democrats to proceed is they can have their inquiry if they want. They can collect their evidence if they want. They can make a campaign issue out of it, and Republicans can do the same thing. Uh, the Republicans, though, I, I I don't think at this point saying the process is, is flawed is going to work because the Democrats have now done what the Republicans wanted. The Republicans wanted it in, out of the shadows and into the light. It's now out of the shadows. It's into the light. To say it's now still illegitimate because the Democrats have done what the Republicans wanted to do suggests to me that the GOP now needs a new talking point, and they got plenty. And I think the best is that uh, let the voters decide. The one thing that I got to I, I got to part ways with my Republican friends on is attacking uh, this lieutenant uh, Vindman is his name Alexander Vindman and his brother who work on the National Security Council have done so loyally and they're they're going to attack him for what he says. The guy apparently felt very, very strongly that the president's phone call was illegitimate. Well, I shouldn't say illegitimate. Um, there, he, he believes his written testimony has yet again, his written testimonies come out. And he is a lieutenant colonel in the American military. And Republicans are attacking him for dual loyalty to Ukraine. His family fled the Soviet Union when he was a kid. He came to America, believed in the American dream, rose to the ranks in the army, and now works in the White House. He and his brother, they work in the White House. This is an American success story, honestly. And he's going to be attacked now because he was concerned with the president. We don't know this guy's leanings, but of course he's going to be vilified as someone disloyal to the president. Um, and he believes he's putting his country first. And I genuinely believe that we should not disparage people like him and Bill Taylor. And I really, I, honestly, I feel strongly about this, and I know some of you disagree with me, and just, just bear with me here while I, I tell you my, my alternative approach would be to go after not them, but what they're saying. If the president really believes that the Obama administration turned a blind eye to corruption and that led to not only self-dealings by the Bidens, but also uh, to the Obama administration using the power of the state to investigate Donald Trump, then Donald Trump deserves answers. And frankly, there are plenty of credible allegations, whether the Democrats want to admit it or not, uh, that the Democrats did in fact use the power of the state to go after Donald Trump. 
And I think instead of attacking the character of people like Bill Taylor and, and Alex Vindeman, uh, the White House can say these guys don't know the extent to which the Democrats use the power of the state to try to go after an American citizen. I'm now trying to investigate, but I can't investigate without the help of foreign governments who may who prior administrations in those countries may have helped the Democrats. You don't have to attack them attack their lack of knowledge on key details. It's what the Democrats are essentially doing with John Durham, the well-respected prosecutor from Connecticut who is now investigating the 2016 election stuff and the Christopher the origins of the Christopher dossier. They're coming out and they're saying, listen, he's a good man, he's a well-respected man, uh, but he's being used in a deeply flawed process. The, the Republicans can say exactly the same thing about these guys and hold their head high that they're not besmirching the character of these people. They're just saying they, they don't know how deep this stuff runs. They, 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 they've got a tiny pinhole worldview into this, and we're seeing the whole thing, and it was deeply corrupting, and we need to expose it. I, I think that's a better way forward for the Republicans than attacking the credibility of these people. I, I wish they wouldn't do that. Hello there. I, I, I got a man, I got to play this audio. This is one of the commentators, Philip Mudd on CNN. Forward how that would... How, well, how the record of what's just happened here with two of them, with, but just just approach. listen, we're getting to it. Here we go. There's no question that the death of Baghdadi is a big deal. On the other hand, you've been walking through the studio this morning, given your lifetime fighting terror, warning everybody this isn't over. This is a long slog. And given that, what do you make of the president's choice of language yesterday? The whimpering, the cowering, especially given that it's not clear that that would have been visible it certainly doesn't seem like it would have been visible on the video to begin with. Well, this makes me uncomfortable. The same feeling I had when I was walking around D.C. after the killing of Bin Laden. I mean, there's, there's an upper level on this. You do not celebrate death. I don't care if it's a terrorist. I don't care if it's someone you hate. A human being has died. We don't celebrate that. The other thing in terms of language, you don't taunt an adversary. You know, we, on, on Sunday afternoons in football, you tell, the, you tell the guys in the locker room, don't give them stuff to put on the bulletin board. You don't use that language which will echo around the Middle East about things like dogs and whimpering because there are still a lot of people who follow this movement who are going to say, you talk about us like that, we're coming at you. I, I, I would not use that and I, I find it, it's embarrassing. You surprised ISIS has been quiet so far? No, partly, I mean, they, they haven't had that much time to react, but also. So, Yet again, we've now got more of this. And, and by the way, John Berman, who I, I know John Berman, he, he's a nice guy. I certainly think he leans left, but the, you, you couldn't have seen it on the video. Who cares? Honestly, I, 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 was, I was talking to my wife about this on commercial break. Who gives a rat's behind that the president said he died whimpering and cowering? Who really gets the only people who get worked up, up about that are the people who hate the president. And, and this leads me to a point. Um, there's doom and gloom out there today for the GOP. Their fundraising is off in the Senate and the House and more and more signs. They're not going to get back to the House. If you go to um, Drudge, his big story goes to Axios. The headline is Republicans fear 2020 wipeout. The Republicans feared a wipeout in 2016. And I, frankly, I was one of those who didn't think the president would win in 2016. But the polling margin is bigger now against him than it was in, in 2016. But I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who said, yeah, but the numbers they're seeing on the ground are pretty significant. And I, it, it got me thinking, how many of you who are listening, and, and you know, again, the phone number here, 
97 Eric 877-973-7425. How many of you have, who voted for the president in 2016 are now not going to vote for him? See, in my point here, my thinking is, I know a lot of people who don't support the president, but they didn't support him in 2016, and the only thing they're doing different now is they're louder about it. But I don't know anyone who supported the president in 2016 and now says, nope, I'm not going to vote for him in 2020. I'm going to take my chances with someone further to the left than Hillary. I know a lot of people, I'm one of them, who didn't vote for him in 2016, who will vote for him in 2020. But I just, I don't know anyone. And I, I got a pretty sizable group of people I stay connected to. And and I, I mean, how many people are not voting for the president now who voted for him in 2016 as opposed to the other way? I think the other way is a larger number and that helps him. Let me play this clip from 60 Minutes from Sunday night with Joe Biden. And you're watching these debates. Do you worry about the gaffes? No, I don't worry about the gaffes. And you know what? The American people know who Joe Biden is. I mean, if he misspeaks one word, they don't. That doesn't affect the way they're going to vote one way or the other. Some Democrats worry and wonder whether you'll be fast enough on your feet or quick enough to defend yourself against President Trump. Well, what they're really trying to make the case is about age. And um, with age comes experience, with experience comes wisdom, Mm -hmm. and with wisdom comes judgment. You know he calls you Sleepy Joe. I know that. (laughs) You will be 77 in November. Is that too old to be president? No. I just say to me, watch me. Just, Just watch. Have you seen any change in his ability to communicate in recent years? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, yes, he's still a gaffe machine. Jill and Joe Biden talking to 60 Minutes. Uh, there's a story out in Bloomberg right now. Headline, Joe Biden in danger of humiliating loss in Iowa, top Democrats warn. Joe Biden risks a humiliating third or fourth place finish in Iowa early next year, according to nearly a dozen senior Democrats in the state who attribute it to what they see as a poorly organized operation that has failed to engage with voters and party leaders. With fewer than 100 days until the February 3rd caucuses, Biden is failing to spend the time with small groups of voters and party officials that Iowans expect, and his campaign outreach has been largely ineffective, according to 11 senior Democrats in the state. They worry that could send Biden to a crippling loss behind Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, who have highly organized campaigns in Iowa. Do you, do you want to know? Yeah, I'm, I don't know why I'm clapping. I'm excited to make the point, I guess. Do you want to know trivia? I have a trivia source for you. Or, or not a trivia source. I, I got a trivia fact for you. With the exception of Barack Obama in 2008, no one running for president has ever secured the nomination after winning the Iowa caucuses in the modern era. I know. I know. I bet you didn't know that. See, again, 11 senior Democrats in the state are saying Joe Biden needs to pay them attention. I bet these 11 senior Democrats in the state of Iowa all have consulting shops or could otherwise be paid by the campaigns to help them in Iowa. I mean, honest to goodness, I mean, this is is the reality here. 
is is you got the big flag waving saying, hey, you got to come to Iowa. What about us? Me, 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 me. Iowans love to be first. But does it actually do them any good? I mean, does it do any of the candidates any good? It, it seems like it's a waste of money for the candidates to go to Iowa. Meanwhile, you, you've got the veil coming off people like Pete Buttigieg and, and Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes was Barack Obama's... Um, uh, he was his creative writing guy on the National Security Council, and and listen to Ben Rhodes uh, talking about Israel at this, uh, what is it, J Street or whatever. It's it's the anti-Israel pretending to be pro-Israel group in D.C. that the Democrats love. I want to approach this um, in, from two directions. The first will be this question of pressure, and then the 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 next question I have is more about affirmation. But on the pressure side. Uh, you know, I, you make a good point, Senator, which is that oftentimes when, you know, even the degree of pressure that President Obama uh, pursued, which is largely rhetorical, you know, can invite some uh, retrenchment in Israeli politics or resistance to it. At the same time, you know, given the stat, direction of the status quo, the question becomes what, what are the levers available? You know, Tommy talked about assistance. You know, another one that we wrestled with in the Obama administration was uh, the UN process. Um, and at the end of the very end of the administration, we abstained on a resolution. Listen, uh, listen. Essentially, uh, you know, uh, crit- critiquing uh, Israeli settlement construction along the same lines of as what we would say in our own words. Um, also, uh, condemned incitement on the Palestinian side. Um, I know you were uncomfortable with that. Right. But you know. It, what are the what about the diplomatic international context? Is there is there any way in which, given that the UN has been one side on this issue, would you rule out that the UN is a potential? I, of, of, I would not rule it out. Would not rule out the United Nations and pressuring Israel to make changes. But it's not just it's not just him. It's Pete Buttigieg too. Listen to Buttigieg on stage at this conference. Short of annexation is settlement construction. We've seen a spike in settlement construction in recent years. Bibi Netanyahu is pretty unabashedly pro settlement. Um, there are some who I think rightly feared that at a certain level of settlement construction, you could no longer have a contiguous Palestinian state. Would you also consider conditioning U.S. aid to Israel as leverage to stop or slow future settlement construction? Well, I'll say this. Uh, The U.S. law framework for security cooperation and aid to any country uh, has very specific expectations about how that will be used. This is built into the Arms Export Control Act. This is built into uh, uh, Leahy law. And we need to make sure that any such cooperation and funding is going to things that are compatible with U.S. objectives and with U.S. law. And if we continue to see steps that are potentially destructive, I think it is a reminder that we need to have the visibility to know whether U.S. funds are being used in a way that's actually not compatible with U.S. policy. Isn't that a quid pro quo? We're going to make Israel stop doing something, comply with us in order to get benefits from us? Isn't that a quid pro quo? Now, I I realize it's not the same as investigating a Democrat running for president, having a foreign country do that, but uh, they want to threaten aid. Here's the thing. So I got to be honest with you here. Let let me just, let me, let me talk. Let me, let me go off 
I, I don't have a script, but but go off script, so to speak. I have things I wanted to talk about. Uh, let me deviate from the things I wanted to talk about and, and spend some time on this. I got my start in campaign politics in 1994 working for Saxby Chambliss uh, as a volunteer. I started the College Republicans at Mercer University, my alma mater, uh, became the chairman, the, the last chairman of the Georgia Federation of College Republicans, the first chairman of the Georgia Association of College Republicans. Um, I, I, it, it was just, it, it was, it, I've been in politics for a long time, since 94, uh, my sophomore year in college, when I really got involved, the Republican wave in 94. I became went to law school, became a lawyer, uh, worked for campaigns, wound up uh, becoming a lawyer for campaigns, and then a manager of campaigns, a consultant of campaigns. I've done polls for campaigns. I've done grassroots strategy for campaigns. I've done third-party coalition building for campaigns. I've done the letter writing. I've done the, the stamps uh, sticking. I, I, I've done all these things for campaigns. I know how to read the polls. I know how to engage with the polls. I know how to do door to door. I I know how to motivate voters. And now I go around the country and I campaign for people running for office. And I don't have a sense of the 2020 election. And I don't because of 2016. And I don't because of 2016 because of the polling. The polling wasn't wrong in 2016. But the polling had enough people in enough states that were vehemently hostile to the president and not just swing states that I didn't have a sense of it. If I, if I had to be real honest and candid with you right now, I think that the odds are against the president's reelection based on swing state polling, but swing state polling is notoriously inaccurate. And here's where I hang on to the president. The economy is good. The president's unpopularity right now is no different than Barack Obama's at this time in 2011. And I don't know, and this is the big one. Honestly, this is the big one. The president won with 70,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. 70,000 voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin voted enough for the president that it shifted the electoral college in his favor. And I know more people, and I have a pretty diverse circle of people in politics that I pay attention to. And I know more people who are now voting for the president who did not vote for the president in 2016 than I know people who voted for the president in 2016 and aren't voting for him now. The only two dynamics that seem to have changed between 2016 and now are that the people who hated the president in 2016 hate him even more now. And some of the people who were skeptical of the president in 2016 have decided, you know what? I think I would rather him than these nuts in the Democratic Party. And that works to the president's advantage. But anecdote is not data, and these are anecdotes. If we're honest about it, these are anecdotes. The anecdote is the president, uh, my friends, myself included, I, I'm in this group. I didn't vote for the president in 2016. I thought he would be no better than Hillary Clinton. And as much as I've got problems with the president, the reality is he's much better than Hillary Clinton. He's actually done a lot for pro-lifers. He's, he's done tax cuts. He's, he's uh, deregulated. He's had a, a mature foreign policy. He moved the Israel emb- uh, embassy in Israel. He got out of the Paris Accord. He got rid of the idiot Iran agreement that the Democrats are just wedded to. 
He's done things I don't like. I don't like tariffs. I don't like his character or his behavior. I think he's got issues. But I'm voting for him. And I know more people like that than I do otherwise. And I got a lot of people who are comfortable telling me how much they dislike the president. And I got a lot of, a lot of people who are comfortable telling me they won't vote for the president. And I got a lot of people who are mad at me for saying I will vote for the president. And I'm sure there are people out there. I'm sure there are people out there who actually voted for, who actually voted for the president in 2016 and now say they're not. We had somebody call this radio program two weeks ago. Who did that? Who said, I'm not going to vote. I voted for him in 2016. I'm not going to. Who was it? It was somebody in Gainesville called the program and said that. And I don't know whether the person voted for the president in 2016 or not. But I, I, I'll take them at the word. Okay, there's one. For every one of those, I know probably six or seven who went the opposite way, who didn't vote for him in 2016, who are voting for him now. And the underlying fundamentals are still good for the economy. And the cultural issues on the left are, are they may be amped up and they may be loud and they may be vocal, but I don't think it actually helps the left. Now, there, there's one issue that has the, will hang, hold the president up. Here's Maria Bartiromo and one of her guests on Fox News from this morning. You know, it's really interesting, though, when you look at, at the business economists that were asked about the slowdown in hiring, falling to a seven-year low. They did talk about the president's tariffs, the imports from China, worsening business conditions. Uh, but it's been one thing to talk about the uncertainty around the tariffs and around USMCA. It's another thing to have businesses now act actually talking about real impact. Have you been hearing more or less of that? Well, you know, it's also the global economy. Let's not forget that. I mean, when you've got a situation where Europe has a very hard time generating any growth, you've got a situation where China's economy has slowed down quite a bit. You know, the U.S. doesn't live in a vacuum. We are going to feel that as well. Yeah, the, the economy is going to slow and the economy is going to slow because the rest of the world economy is going to slow. And so much of the world economy is dependent on us and tied to us. When they slow down their orders of American goods and services, it impacts us because our companies do have to scale back and companies are scaling back. But the, the scale back has nothing to do with the American domestic economy. It's got to do with the global economy. That'll have some spillover here. But again, again. I don't know anyone really who is out there saying, I voted for this guy and now I can't vote for him. And that's not to say those people don't exist. I, I'm sure I'll, I'll put this on Twitter and point this out. And I, I'm sure I will find people. But I know so many more who are in the opposite boat. So the underlying fundamentals look bad. The underlying fundamentals do for the Republicans, but they look bad in 2016 as well. On top of all of this, we have a historic tradition in this country, a modern historic tradition in this country, where it is very, very hard for a president to lose his second term, Jimmy Carter notwithstanding. Carter actually is the exception to the rule. We have another historic rule that the party in power has a hard time keeping it for three terms. Uh, George H.W. Bush is, is the uh, exception to that rule. And the only reason George H.W. Bush got elected is because people were giving Ronald Reagan a third term through George H.W. Bush. The moment they realized George H.W. Bush wasn't Ronald Reagan, they got rid of him. They gave Clinton two terms despite scandal after scandal. They gave Bush two terms. In fact, Bush won the second election with uh, over 50% of the popular vote. 
They gave Obama two terms. The odds are they give give Trump two terms. And I think uh, Donald Trump could become the very first president in American history to lose the popular vote twice and still win because of the Electoral College. And that, I think, is why so much energy is being expended by Democrats to delegitimize the Electoral College. Any process that obstructs Democratic victory is illegitimate. Redistricting, you know, has been illegitimate. You know, you're, you're not hearing much about redistricting anymore. And you're not, one, because the Supreme Court ruled that partisan gerrymandering is outside their jurisdiction. But more importantly, the Democrats are looking at the data and looking like uh, Republicans are going to get wiped out at the state level in 2020, and that's going to help them. And I got to tell you, if I was a political prognosticator in 2020, I'd be betting on the Democrats, honestly. Because all of the headwinds are in their favor. The president's popularity in swing states is down dramatically. The Democrats ahead of him, uh, up dramatically. The economy's starting to slow down. Uh, suburban voters disliking greatly. But at the same time, we've got a year. And the president hasn't been spending his money yet against the Democrats. And he will spend his money on the Democrats while they're still hurting for money. And that will define the Democrats. If you recall in 2004, John Kerry was ahead of George W. Bush. And there was mass panic in Republican circles that George W. Bush was going to lose to John Kerry. And then the Bush campaign turned their money spigot on and let it start flowing out to define John Kerry. And by the time John Kerry officially became the Democratic nominee, the Republicans had so thoroughly uh, tarred and feathered him as a disloyal flip-flopper that nobody wanted to vote for him. And the Republicans have the time to do the same. There is a long runway between now and the election for the Trump campaign to change the dynamic. So if I had to call the race today, I would say, yeah, not, not only do the Democrats win, they take back all of Congress, including the Senate, and they pick up some major gains in the House as state, state races, state general assemblies, state legislatures, governor's mansions. But the election's not today. It's a long way off, and there's still time for the dynamic to change. I'll tell you one way, place I don't think the Democrats are going to make big inroads Georgia. The Huffington Post is up for sale, and here's a great example of why. I kid you not. Headline, is it time to ban Halloween candy? Spooky season creates mountains of plastic waste with no solution in sight. It's by somebody named Kate Bratskier. Americans will buy approximately 600 million pounds of Halloween candy this year. I think I bought that much by myself. We give out so much every year. They'll spend $2.6 billion on bite-sized candy bars and bags of candy corn. Nobody spends money on candy corn except your grandma. After the holiday, nearly all the wrappers and packages from these confections will end up in landfills where they'll sit around for decades or more. And what's environmentally conscious trick-or-treater to do in the zero waste facebook group of which i'm a member i asked if folks had alternatives to halloween candy wrapper hell several members said they went out of their way to hand out plastic free treats like playing cards compostable chewing gum from a plastic free store or classic halloween favorites like nerds lemon heads and milk duds that come in cardboard recyclable containers seriously people seriously 
This is insane. Uh, Sonny Bunch, uh, film critic, uh, had a piece in the Washington Post a while back. The headline was environmentalists make good movie villains because they want to make your real life worse. And I believe he is correct on that point. Uh, They absolutely want to make your real life worse. Oh, my goodness, y'all. Yeah. The hand-wringing from the environmentalists left over this stuff does them more harm than good. By the way, whatever happened to Greta Thunberg? Did she sail her way back home? Is she walking, waiting for the Arctic? I I guess. I don't know. They're going to dog sled or something. I have no idea. But she has fallen out of the headlines. Absolutely fallen out of the headlines. And that was like a month ago. It feels like it was three years ago. Whatever happened to her? The environmentalist movement does itself no favors with this sort of stuff. The the hysteria out there over whether or not you can have Halloween candy. I I'm I'm sorry. I, I'm hung up on this still. I, I'm and I'm trying to think what can I say that isn't going to get me thrown off the radio and in trouble um, with this sort of thing. I I, I gotta I, I gotta tell you, um, we give out a lot of candy. And Halloween, and this year there were some folks in our neighborhood who tried to guilt everyone into having allergy-free signs and having separate segregated candy that was allergy-free, and I I didn't do it. Uh, Life is too complicated already, and I mean this with no disrespect to those of you who have kids who have peanut allergies, because I got kids with allergies but not peanut allergies. I just I'm I bought the big bags of candy from Target. And I can't guarantee that your kid won't get an allergic reaction from eating it. Um, But we did our best to get some candy that didn't have peanuts, but it's all in the same bag together. Why do people have to complicate life so much? Life is too complicated as is. I'm sorry, folks.